This is Tilak Pleaser the Fourth and Senator of the Second. And this is edition number 19 of Musings of the Living. This is a song by me called A Storm. That was my song called A Storm. This is an interview with Steve, a cook and manager of the Elf's Cafe of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. You work at the Elf's Cafe. What's that like? It's a good environment to work in, and uh, the people who often come in are are good clients. the The staff have a good sense of unity and harmony as they work together. There's not not much of any dissension or discord as we'd say but uh, there's a real mix of of uh, the neighborhood in this place every day how did you come to work at the alice cafe i was uh just got back from mexico city i've been working with street kids for seven years and a fr friend of mine was working here in winnipeg and so i called him and he had told me about harry lahotsky this was 2003 and he said you should come out and meet harry and See if you like their philosophy of ministry. Because we believe that uh, in working with, with people, you should give them a hand up, but not a hand out. And Harry's idea and philosophy was on the same page. And so we came out for an interview. 
and uh, we thought we could work together and so we came out here in July of 2004 to join the New Life Ministry staff. What were you doing with the street kids down in Mexico? We would, uh, every day I'd go visit the street kids and uh, play soccer with them and also teach them the Bible. I'd take a Bible lesson with me and then uh, after the Bible lesson we'd uh, have something to eat and then I'd just talk with them and visit with them and see if they'd like to come off the street. A lot of them were on drugs. They do thinner there. They do drug and marijuana. They do whatever down there and they uh, they just need a, a door or a window to be able to leave the street. So that was my goal was to be able to work with them and teach them about the love of God and to be able to give them a window of opportunity so they could leave the street. And some did, some didn't, but at least some of them were able to get off the street and get into a life of stability and uh, take care of themselves financially. What were some stories they really enjoyed from the Bible? Well, they liked stories like Jonah intriguing of what uh, the water stories and the whole Jonah being found in the belly of a fish they thought that was interesting I always tried to take pictures of the Bible stories that I worked with because they they liked the visuals and every once in a while I try to get a film and watch a film with them that would have to be done away from the street but uh, sometimes we did it at our church other places and uh, we organized events like Christmas dinners we ordered Christmas dinners for them and so on. So uh, we were able to uh, demonstrate the love of Christ to them and show them uh, a little bit more of a life than other than on the street. What were some memorable experiences from Mexico? Well, I think one of the more challenging events was uh, you keep telling uh, young people to stop doing thinner. And, and the same with alcohol, fetal alcohol syndrome or, or whatever it is, it will, it will destroy you and it will also, if you're pregnant, destroy your child. And one of the people that I worked with, she was 18 years old and she was pregnant. And she was six months pregnant and uh, she was probably the worst user of both thinner and other drugs. And I kept encouraging her that there was a, the place I, there was a place I could take her run by the people from Spain to get her off her drugs so that she could go have a safe pregnancy, but she wouldn't. And uh, she uh, had the child on the street, it died, and then she died two weeks later. And it was, uh, it was just a challenge to keep on uh, reinforcing with the young people and people that uh, if you get into negligent lifestyles, you can harm not only yourself, but other people. So it was a it was a sad day when we buried Rosa, but uh, a lot of the young people that uh, were at the funeral did some serious thinking about life. Mm -hmm. In other events, uh, we uh, one, one of the, the good things is a number of the kids did leave the street, and Hugo was one of them. He was probably the, one of the more violent, disrespectful kids that I knew on the street. And uh, he came off the street finally, and we were able to, first of all, put him through an apartment with some friends of mine, and he lived there for a year, and then uh, had a friend of mine cook for him for another six months, making sure he was fed every day. And it began a slow process of, of getting him a job that he was able to keep. And now, that's four years ago, he's got a nice, safe, reliable business that he, he runs himself. And... Uh, 
he was once part of that group that lived on the street and begged and stole and did whatever to keep his habit going. So there are there are good changes and good blessings of of the work that you do where people do come off the street and and uh, do change. Did your ideas of Christianity change before and after Mexico City? Yes, I believe that in our our Christian philosophy if it's a philosophy that comes from the Bible, must be lived out more practical. And uh, I see that living in a either a developing country or a third world country, that uh, there's a greater need to really be more simple and not desire all the things that are out on the market and uh, live a bit more frugally. Our North American culture has almost dictated how we should become and that concerns me after living in uh, another country for seven years that uh, there are so many things that everybody wants out there and they're just not necessary but the commercials and the movies and the and the superstars on rock stages and everything they kind of promote all that stuff so I think it's a, a good idea for people to readdress what the Bible says on living humbly and and justly and to really look at is their lifestyle in agreement with what the Bible says. When did you first come into contact with Christianity? A, a friend of mine invited me and so I thought I'll check it out and so I went for a couple of years and and re realized that uh, I think that God has the answer for for people and humanity and so I stayed in in a Baptist church for a number of years. What person in the Bible do you think you're most akin to? Probably Peter. Peter was forthright, kind of, uh, some, sometimes he kind of got his foot stuck in his mouth because of some of the things he said, but uh, he lived what he believed, and he, he um, kind of did some unusual things, like in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were trying to uh, arrest Jesus, they, he uh, took his sword out, and Jesus again reinforced some of the principles. He said, those who live by the sword died by the sword, so... Some of the things that Peter was learning, he had to learn in, in life. But then later, Peter became one of, the, one of the main stability people of the church in Antioch. So um, I like Peter. Uh, I feel I'm similar to him in some ways. And uh, he's a person I can identify with. What story in the Bible has really guided your life? I'd say the, the Mount of Transfiguration is when... Uh, Jesus was on one of the mountains and Moses and Elijah appeared and the Jews were around watching and the disciples were there and uh, the cloud disappeared and they disappeared. Well, it was, was kind of interesting because Peter, Peter again was there and he said, oh, it's Moses and Elijah. We should build a tabernacle or we should build a building and invite them to stay here. And... Uh, and then they disappeared and the Bible says that the only one left there was Jesus and kind of shows me that the centrality of life is not this prophet or that prophet or this person or that person but the central focus is is, is Jesus Christ that uh, he was pointing to a focus of life and it shouldn't be your great prophets of your faith or this but it should be the one who called himself the Son of God so that always is a forefront in my mind that who is the person of Jesus Christ? Did he 
he stated some things of who he was and they were quite powerful and quite strong and um, they make a difference if if they're followed uh, thanks very thank much for the interview. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson Read by Kelsey Heinrichs This is Calvin, your captain speaking. Just to reassure you that yes, there is someone up front. Calvin pilots a jet airliner across the country at 35,000 feet. He is given clearance to land. But what's this? A plane from a rival airline is making for the same runway to shave off precious minutes of its schedule? It's a 600 mile an hour game of chicken. Calvin pulls upon the throttle and lurches ahead. The other pilot tries to cut Calvin off with a sudden drop in altitude. Calvin switches on the fastened seatbelt light in the cabin and does a barrel roll. At 5 G's, Calvin hopes not to black out. As they close in on the runway, the other pilot has no choice but to pull up and circle around again. Calvin wins! Hey, Mum, is it true I could get a pilot's license at age 14? No. The end. This is a song I'm learning by the Beatles.
That was In My Life by The Beatles. going to read a response to a movie I recently watched. The Squid and the Whale. The Squid and the Whale follows a family as they fall apart, coping with their troubles in different ways, such as sexuality, alcohol, status, and belittlement. There are four distinct characters. The mother is a woman who has just discovered her writing ability. This doesn't go over with her husband, though, who is a pretentious, unsuccessful writer. The oldest son, however, has infinite faith in his father and follows him even to the renouncing of his mother while the younger son has more of a bond with his mother. As the parents divorce, their lives spin into worlds of anger, denial, and general twistedness. The way the movie explores our way of avoiding each other and shifting blame is incredibly realistic and quite confrontational, even if we're not in situations as extreme as these characters. The movie supplies laughter at how blatantly pathetic they are, but a certain sadness in their messy, random grappling for a one-up. In the end, I was left with so many mixed feelings, I wasn't quite sure what to think, except that it was good. This is a first-hand account of a Dungeons & Dragons game. A disheveled man came in the door of the Adventurer's Guild Bar. As soon as he did, he collapsed on the floor, a note falling out of his hand. Bound. Paper. Dead body. The man tried to say. Cal's face gained a surprised look as this happened. The first words out of my mouth were, Holy flaming swords! Our party was aghast. Cal picked up the sweaty note and opened it, and I was sure that none of us were breathing as Cal read it with anticipation. People of Port, we call out for your strongest men. War has been upon us. We desperately cry out for help of our fellow allies. War has been brought upon, and we are very weak. Our rations are growing thin. Our men are growing weary. We need new life in our army, or else we will be destroyed by them. The man who is bringing this letter has directions and further details he can guide you back to Tyrone if you accept our plea for help. Most ways are blocked by them to prevent food carts from passing through. There is one path they have not yet found. We think they are trying to outlast us, so any food or supplies you could bring would be very helpful. Please, Tyrone needs your help. The writing looked incredibly messy, as if it were written in haste, but the royal crest of the king was definitely inscribed on the bottom left-hand corner. I was sure the messenger's eyes were on fire because of his frightened state as he belched in some air and started speaking. My name is Millard. The letter you just read I found on a fresh corpse near the edge of the woods while getting my firewood. Where did you find him? I inquired. He was just on the forest edge with three arrows, engulfed deep into his chest. 
He looked dead, but blood was still coming from the leaking wounds. I'm guessing I missed him by, by about four or five hours. I could show you the body if you so wish. What did you find on him? I questioned. On his body was the crest of Tyron. He was stripped of all gear, but the note was in a secret compartment in his crest. He wore no boots or gloves and wielded no weapons that I could see. My guess he was stripped. I'm sure it was the luck of the draw they found no note. What were you doing there? Do you know the way to Tyrone? Asked Cade. My home is just a little ways from the forest edge. I was collecting lumber when I found his body. I took the note and hurried here because it looked urgent. If you need a way to Tyrone, I know quite a few from selling my goods. Although, as the note says, there is only one way that isn't blocked by whatever forces they are talking about. It would be risky, but I'm willing. Hmm. Hmm. We must go to Tyrone to help this king out then, wailed Roan. Cheers to that! Screamed Linky. I'm all for it, belched Thereville, Cal, and Tiglath in synchronicity. I'm very knowledgeable of the many secret ways to the hidden city. I'd be happy to help, replied Millard. As we arrived at the scene of the dead corpse, I held my nose in disgust while Cal licked his lips. The man on the ground looked paralyzed, and three arrows were sticking out of his bloody chest. The body was stripped, except for the crest of Tyrone. That must have been a brutal death, I muttered. This is the letter was hidden inside his crest when I found him. Not much has happened since then, said Millard. I think we might be able to tell what happened, proclaimed Roan. If I cast a speak to the dead spell, we can ask him three questions. What do you want to ask him? Who killed him? Cade piped up. And, and who are the them in the note? Linky added. And of course, what the secret passage is. Roan finished. He cast a spell and the body stood before him. Who killed you? The body answered, I cannot tell you, for I did not see, but I can tell you what happened. I just escaped the woods coming to deliver this message to you when I heard a noise. I turned and looked to the woods. Three arrows fled from the trees and I died. In the note, who are the them that you refer to? Roan asked next. The Zill, replied the corpse. And what is a secret way to Tyron? If you continue on this path, you'll find a valley. Go down and take the path along the edge, and you will find a wall of vines. Walk through this, and you're safe. For now. The corpse replied, and with that, fell to the ground, completely lifeless once more. We left for the secret passage right after finding that stinky corpse, and we were all excited at the prospect of helping this fallen city. The rattling sound of us hiking started, and we went off in search of Tyrone. As we got into the path in the forest, I noticed that it hadn't been used in quite a while, but in the past, it had been heavily used. We all had the feeling of being watched, so Linky started swinging in the trees, much to the surprise of Millard. What's all this about? yelled Roan. All around us, there were seemingly randomly designed slashes on the trees, up high and low down. Suspicious. It, is, it must be the mark of the Zill. We gotta keep a move on and keep our eyes peeled, said Millard. About five minutes later, we approached a cave covered with luxurious vines and a fresh spring of clear water beside it. Why don't we damn sleep here? Cal intensely said. So we set up camp and Thervil and Roan stayed on the first duty of watch. Thervil and Roan switched off with Linky and Cade. After about an hour of hearing the crickets chirping, 
Cade pointed to the distant bushes, where dozens of sets of eerie green eyes were moving up and down. They came over to me to wake me up. What? What's happening? Tiglath, please, sir. Stay on guard while we investigate something. As the duo snuck out of the cave, I sat down and saw what they were talking about. Suddenly, a loud screech came out of the still night air as Azil is struck down. Get up, people, get up! We have some Zil to slaughter! I bellowed. We all got out onto the battlefield as Cal cast Soundburst, knocking the leader of the Zil tribe into unconsciousness. Take this, buddy! I said as I brutally butchered another Zil. The Zil's buddy came at me trying to bite my arm off, and I reacted in cleaving it. The Zil can paralyze its victim and plant eggs in the wounds they inflict. The eggs hatch, and then the young Zil feast on the living victim. Cal said upon resorting to his bardic knowledge. Linky shuddered and commented on their gross tendencies in Venerin. <laughs> and Cade said, a great big, Sick as hell! We took one Zill for prisoner and put the dead Zill corpses on our horseback so as not to leave a trail. What if we decapitated the dead Zill so the people of Tyrone would admire us? What do you think about that, guys? Excitedly exclaimed Roan. Cal solemnly shook his head in response to the pitiful idea. Just before the sunset the next day, we came upon a mysterious valley. I took a sharp inhale as I saw billions of Zill walking around amidst a swath of tents and fire. Our party stealthily walked on our cliff path to the Path of Green, the magical path that Millard said would lead us into Tyrone. Be very quiet, whispered Millard, as he stepped into the impenetrable wall of vines, and we then followed him. As I went in, I looked back out through the wall and was surprised. I saw the outside perfectly. They kept this as the last resort of support for anything like this occasion, announced Millard. Our party went along into the path into Tyrone, and I knocked on the door. A tiny, dirty old gnome named O.K. came out, and we got him to open the gate to Tyrone. What's up with the Zill outside the wall? I asked. They've been starving in our throats for three harsh months now. We can't stand it. We all think they're just about to wage war on our city. Said OK. We entered the gate to the sewers used to gain entrance into Tyrone. I slapped my hand over my nose because the stench was so black-hearted. Raw sewage flowed everywhere into the drain. After about 20 minutes of long and hard walking, we reached a lift. Two lonely and bored guards came right to our service and were extremely, if not a bit too glad to do so. We got up to the first level of Tyrone. We were all appalled at the sight. They were scabbed and skinny corpses lying all around in broken heaps. A bold signpost stood out that read, Tyrone, the city of gold. Stores with broken windows lined the streets. I heard the sound of breaking glass under hoof as the night came to a jarring stop in front of our party. Are you here to aid us in battle? He questioned. Sure! Linky said. Where are you from? Port, Roan answered. Welcome to the city of Tyrone. You can see what the Zill have done to this place. There's not enough food to feed these people, so they fight each other for what is left. This level is like a ghost town. All will be lost soon enough. Please follow me. The king wants to see you, although I have to warn you, he's been acting quite different in these past few weeks. He said as he took us down the first few streets. Beware though, it's a bit chaotic at the next lift. People on the first level are trying to make it farther up. The Zill are supposed to attack any day now, and the king refuses to let them into any other level. We walked down the streets with him as he led us to the lift to the next level of Tyrone. 
When we got to it, we saw a swarm of people trying to board it. The Tyrone soldiers made way for us as we got on the lift. As we went up, a few people tried to board, but they were pulled back down by some more guards. The second level looked a lot better. People were actually walking on the roads and sidewalks. It won't be too long before this level is just as bad as the first. The food supply is running desperately low and the second level citizens can feel it, said the knight as we were lifted to the third level. As we were lifted to the third level, we were aghast at how well everything looked. Elegance was a key here, and there were beautiful fountains, albeit being a bit dry. The shops on this level were full of things to buy. The knight walked us to the last lift and bid us farewell. The king's waiting for you, but he's not what he usually is right now. Good luck. Preached the knight. Holy counters! Linky squeaked as we reached the fourth floor. The area was beautiful, with a huge fountain of running water in the middle of a magnanimous courtyard full of exotic plants. A cast iron door lay behind that. Millard guided us through to it, and we met the unhealthy-looking king who was eating a meal fit only for a king. Welcome, friends. So the party at port has come at last. I was hoping for this. I sent dozens of letters, but to all the messengers must have gone killed. A shame, if you ask me. Those were some of my best men. Roan whispered to the party, I think I'm going to do a detect magic. We found out that something around the king, perhaps himself and perhaps his chair, was emanating evil magic into the king. A very stealthy thing to do. Roan then whispered to us, Let's slap the king. Maybe that'll take him out of the curse. Cal just looked at Roan sadly and shook his head. I'm putting you in command of my army. I'm leaving. I'm too important for the fall of this city. The king explained. We all looked at each other appalled. When are you leaving? Cal asked. Tomorrow. There will be a meeting and I will leave then. Can you at least show us an outline of your military forces and city defenses? Cade asked. The king called his military commander and he took us away to show us the layout. We think that the, we think that the king is under a horde spell, said Theraval. We agree. He's been acting like this for about a month now. At first, he was really supportive of getting rid of the Zill, and now just doesn't give a damn, fumed the military commander. The Zill will find the entranceway to Tyrone. We've got to do something, Cade said. We know. Our council has been trying to figure something out for the past month now. Replied the military commander. What if we collapse the secret passageway? Cade suggested. Then bring the lower levels up to the second level. Said Roan. And then set the booby traps on the bottom. I said. Fire traps as well? <laughs> Linky squeaked. We'd make the first level flammable. Added Cade. Then we'd lock the doors. Cal excitedly said. And then finally light the bottom level on fire so the Zill can't escape once they're in. Crescendoed terrible. Wisdom, read by Sean Patterson. Let faithful love and constancy never leave you. Tie them round your neck.
Write them on the tablet of your heart. Thus you will find favor and success in the sight of God and of Yahweh. Trust wholeheartedly in Yahweh. Put no faith in your own perception. Acknowledge him in every course you take, and he will see that your paths are smooth. And that means, don't get your panties in a knot. This is a song by me called Blue Sky Mind. Blue sky mind with purple eyes. Solitary silence with heavenly lies. Smiling men of death, working on a wedding. Looking out the window to see the sky shed. Rainbow this world, rising in an empty minded air. And these dull purple eyes continue to stare. Heaven exiled the stormy crater clouds The rain was too cold and the thunder was too loud And the sky looked around and saw the sun was not blue And after much thought it was exiled too So heaven was blindfolded from what was below And in the darkness no light showed Beneath people smiled with fake delight Killing each other softly in the middle of the night Until no one was left but Cheshire cat smiles And radio jingles and business files And on the fringe was the clouds and the sun And for once they were happy that they had been shunned Sky mind with purple eyes, solitary silence with heavenly lies, smiling men of death, working on a wedding, looking up the sky to see the sky shedding. Rainbow this world writes in empty minded air, and dull purple eyes continue to stare. That was my song, Blue Sky Mind.
I'm going to read a book response about a book I just finished reading. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. When I first finished reading this book, I was left with a deep sense of gratitude that I had stumbled upon this novel and picked it up. I was startled by how good it ended up being. I thought it would be just any book. Good, but ordinary. Reading it was like reading a combination of Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger and 1984 by George Orwell, two of my favorite books. The novel is the following of Chief Bromden in a psychiatric ward. Like Holden Caulfield of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, he only listens. He doesn't exist to others and hardly exists to himself. But he lives in the world of Big Brother, also known as Big Nurse. Put in the light of realistic situations, the same dystopian images and themes of 1984 emerge clearly and are vividly frightening. Unlike 1984, a muddy glimpse of hope is given through the conniving and crafty McMurphy. McMurphy is a gambler, a fighter, and a ladies' man. We are confused to his motives, not sure if they're selfish or selfless, not sure if he's sane or insane. Big Nurse has some of the same questions brought up about her character. Is she just a deluded helper, or really an evil conspirator? The book walks the line of reality and unreality through the mind of what seems to be a schizophrenic. McMurphy and the Big Nurse become locked in a battle of wits, emotion, and force. As the battle goes on, the stakes rise rapidly. This war is paralleled by Chief Bromden's inner battle as he looks at his psychological, emotional, and spiritual problems. The novel's realism strikes a chord. All the characters are deeper and more complicated than ever. Just as you figure you know them, a little more is revealed. It's like maneuvering in a world of icebergs, to use one of the most overused metaphors ever. One of the biggest payoffs is that you yourself are an iceberg. But not only are the characters lying in a gray zone, but the plot is ambiguous. What's happening is always multi-layered. The writing as well is diverse and fresh, at once comedic and then sad. The voice the writer uses is a breath of air for all of us. This was only my original response. My awe at the story's power was expanded upon seeing the movie. A lot of the movie was not at all how I expected it, and points I found important were left out. At first I was disappointed, but as I watched, I began to see what it had offered to these people. I realized how the book continued after days of reading the last sentence to show me new perspectives. The movie also helped me just appreciate the book more in general. What the film did well just enriched those parts of the book, and what the film missed just expanded my love for those sections. In total, the book is one of the richest reading experiences I've had lately, and also helped open my eyes to a new part of the world. It's an incredibly worthwhile read, and I would say it has something to offer to everybody at every stage of his or her life. If you have not read this book, read it. If you have read this book, read it again. If you're presently in the process of reading it, finish it, wait a while, then read it again. For the musical spotlight for this edition, we're doing the band Herman's Hermits as requested by Arthur Paul Patterson of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Here's a song by them. I'm Henry the Eighth, I am 
Henry VIII, I am, I am I got married to the widow next door She's been married seven times before And everyone was an Henry She wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam I'm a eighth old man, I'm Henry Henry VIII, I am Second verse, same as the first I'm Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII, I am, I am I got married to the widow next door She's been married seven times before And everyone was an Henry She wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam I'm a eighth old man, I'm Henry Henry VIII, I am That was the song I'm Henry VIII I Am by Herman's Hermits. Here's a short biography on them. Herman's Hermits was an incredibly commercially successful British rock band in the 60s that was just below the popularity of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles for a time. Why weren't they as famous then? They had no critical acclaim or respect from musical reviewers and were left to thrive only on their youthful teenage audience. Startlingly though, they didn't play much of their recorded work. Most of the time, the producers brought in other backing musicians to accompany Peter Noon, the lead vocalist, singing. Some of these musicians brought into play were Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, future guitarist and bassist keyboardist of popular 70s band Led Zeppelin. Herman's Hermes started off as a live band called The Heartbeats. Like most British pop bands, trying to make it, they just played pubs. They showed no more potential than the next band, and because there were so many, their success was unlikely. Then one night, lacking their leading vocalist, they were joined by 16-year-old Peter Noon, a star on the soap opera Coronation Street. Equipped with a youthful singer, they could put an innocent, naive, sweet-sounding vocals to their songs and give them the edge of clean and goody-good. The heartbeats were set aside from most of the bands out there. This new style got them noticed by Mickey Most, a new producer. The heartbeats were soon to become the Herman's Hermits, and the credit of the name varies from Carl Green and Mickey Most, but the way it comes about stays the same. One of them noticed that Peter Noon looked like Sherman of Mr. Peabody and Sherman. In search of a memorable name, they dropped the S and became Herman and his Hermits, which was shortened to Herman's Hermits finally. They struggled with chart success, trying to balance themselves between the United States of America and Europe. Both wanted different things and Herman's Hermits were eager to please both. They discovered, though, that this was harder than it looked. As they became more popular in the States, their home continent craved harder and truer and more complicated rock, being defined by the, ro- by the Who and the Rolling Stones. As a joke, Peter Noon put on a Cockney accent and recorded this song, almost as a testament to a 19th 
1930s, and 1940s European family name in music, and recorded the track, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. A disc jockey in America heard their song and told him to release it as a single. Herman's Hermits were horrified. They knew all the credibility they had. They had worked so hard to grow agonizingly slow in Europe would disappear if this song was released as any more than a joke. A compromise was reached and the single was only released in the United States. It topped the charts and it became a formula, releasing I'm Henry VIII I Am. Herman's Hermits tried to break away from these stereotypes that had been established. They released folk songs, psychedelic songs, and harder rock songs, but they were already on the decline, and despite releasing a few more chart-topping pop songs and attempts to stop the steady fall, they went under finally. Just recently, they have been finally recognized as a band with diversity and a range. While before only their pop songs were made known to their critics, now their folk songs, psychedelic songs, and rock songs were released, and the critics heard them, finally realizing the musical talent of Herman's Hermits. So I really liked Herman's Hermits. I thought they were a very, very good band. I agree. But like on a different level, they're very poppy and they're very, they're very, very poppy. And, um, yeah. They are. They're quite poppy. Uh-huh. Quite a popular-sounding band. Yeah. Yep. Well, their sound is very poppy. But what does that even mean? Like, what do you mean by poppy? We said that we asked this before in uh, in Supertramp, because we said they were poppy. But they have a very different sound than Supertramp does. It means that but they both sound poppy. How does that work? Their sound is very upbeat. It's very... Um, at least this, the thing about Herman's Hermits is that they have a whole other side. They have the English side and the U.S. side, right? Exactly. Like So, the, but the, the U.S. side is very poppy with flocks of teenage girls listening to them. Exactly. But the England side was disappointed because they wanted actually good music. Right. And then when they tried to please them, nobody else would listen to their music. Like they did, they did cover of uh, a Donovan band, the, the band Donovan, one of their songs. And they did like... And uh, the, I don't know, like it was, it was because they were, by the time they were getting popular, England was going to, the Beatles were, were following Bob Dylan, they, you know, the Beatles were putting out stuff like Sgt. Peppers and the White Album, and so they felt like they were kind of lost, because they were still doing their poppy sound, while the Beatles, which was poppy sound like them before, was, was finding a new path. Yeah. And the Rolling Stones and the Who, they were going onto, onto more hard rock. And it was like they were, everyone was finding their way, and Herman's Hermits didn't really have a way, almost. Like, they were still stuck in the pop. Yeah. Because they were, like, stuck in a rut, almost. It felt like they were very manipulated by their producer. Like, here, just reading about them, like, um, the producer got other musicians to play other music. Yeah. So, yeah. It was, yeah. But there's also the thing about image. Like, in the England and stuff, they had... They want the people there wanted them to wanted them to wanted their actual good music, but the people in the U.S. wanted their poppy music. Exactly, and their producer wouldn't wouldn't put out both. Yeah, and that's where they ran into trouble. And actually, um, because they're from he Peter Noon is uh from Manchester. Uh, in he where's Manchester? I think it's a place in England. I'm not positive, but he went to uh, Liverpool, 
Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, I can't remember the bar's name, but where, where like the Beatles got their start and a bunch of people got their start, you know? Yeah, yeah. That one pub. Um, Peter Noon went in and he was like, he was being all uh, all cheerful, but then all the Liverpudlians, I think that's how what their name is called, they all hated hated him because he was from Manchester. So they were like, they had like a rivalry with the Manchester people. So they like. He was being all cheerful, and then they just wouldn't talk. Nobody would talk to him, and he like ordered everybody drinks, and then nobody drank the drink drinks for that that he ordered them. Just because he's from Manchester. Yeah. So it's like, like they were so pulled by different areas. What do you mean? Like they had that you America, and they had they had uh, different yeah. parts in Europe, and they, were they didn't they didn't they they didn't really have any strong direction. It seemed. Exactly. Yeah. But they did, from the poppy music that we heard, like we were listening to it for for the week, we only listened to the pop music that they had because that's all we could really find. And so, whatever we say, it's on a very narrow slice of them. Mm-hmm. So do not trust our word for them. No, don't. You don't, don't find out for them. yourself. Find out for yourself. But, uh, so, um,. Yeah, it, but it was why interesting. Were, why were they so poppy? Well, I think because in that generation, that's what the music, what the scene was, what they were coming out of. But then, when the scene stopped being that, they were still in that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Weird. But they were even their poppy stuff. I still, I still liked it. Like it yeah. was, there was a certain. It was good. It was good pop. Like it was. It was very poppy, good pop. Yeah, especially compared to the pop nowadays. I think. Yeah, way better. Yeah, way better. It's like um, me and my friend. We we were going to we were going bowling one day, and they were playing, uh, Avril Lavigne on the thing, and we said we wish they played uh '60s pop instead of this now, instead of modern pop at least, because it's way. It's way better. Yeah. But, uh... Well, if you said that, you might as well go back completely to the 60s and play everything from the 60s. No, because I like some music from, from nowadays. Anyways, but, um... Yeah, very, very... I, I would like to actually hear some of their yeah. some of their folk stuff and their they, psychedelic songs. It'd probably be really weird. Yeah, definitely. Like, because his voice is so distinct to Peter Noy... Peter Noon's voice. Oh, Peter Noon is the main guy, eh? Yeah, he's the singer. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, Peter Noon is the main singer, and he's... Mm-hmm. He, yeah. yeah, he's a very weird voice. Yeah. Especially when he puts on, like, like puts on the accent in, like, the song that we just heard on 108 Time and stuff like that. Yeah. Weird. They did weird stuff. Yeah, they did. But it, I, I don't know, like... Like, from hearing, like, we heard so- songs like Listen People. Yeah. And that, you could feel like they were doing a little different. They were, like, trying something a little new, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it was weird how we first found out about them, eh? Yeah. That was really weird. Uh, how we first found out about them. The, the requester of them, Arthur Paul Patterson of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, he, we were at his house one day, and he... He, just, he turned around and he started singing I'm Henry VIII I Am. Oh, no, no, no. I was coming home and I was doing trigonometry and he started singing Wonderful World. And he's like, don't know much about trigonometry. And then and then we're like, what the hell? And then he started singing I'm Henry VIII I Am. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then he started doing punk renditions on it and like screaming the lyrics out. Oh, I'm Henry the and stuff like that. Yeah. It was weird. But it, but then after that, I guess we never really dropped the idea of Herman's Hermits and he re finally requested it for us. Yeah. Huh. Well, we told him to request yeah, it. Yeah, well, we told him, request something, and he's like, all right, I'll request uh, Herman's Hermits for you guys. Yeah. We're like, okay, <laughs> sure. So overall, they're, they're a worthwhile band. Yeah, I'd say you gotta, so. You gotta listen to them. Like, check them out. They're interesting to check out. They're fun to check out. Bye, Joel. Bye, Eric. Bye, listeners. That was Musings of the Living, Edition 19. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any requests, suggestions, or comments, email us at musingsoftheliving at gmail.com. No spaces, no dashes, no underscores. No nothing. And here's an outro song.